All of us give thanks to God for you, Aaron, and for Angela bringing the preschool component and Lori the science component. It's been an awesome week. Thank you for filling our house with such joy. We're in Acts chapter 16 today, and I want to ask you a question as we begin. How do you react when you face trials and troubles come into your life? All week I've had something in my throat, and so when people say to me, how are you? I want to complain about what's in my throat. So we are tempted to complain, and we fall into the habit of complaint, and we often make ourselves more miserable when we complain. Here's my loving Dan. Thanks, Dan. Hot. Okay. All right. Can I have some? Okay. Yeah, it's tea. Mm. Yeah. Dan, my friend. So we make people who are happy miserable when we complain. I was talking to somebody last night, and I asked him, I said, how are you doing? And he said, I have nothing to complain about. I said, I haven't heard that in so long. Somebody say, I have nothing to complain about. Now, this guy has just gone through surgery. So I believe it's true that in our humanity, we want to complain but there must be another approach to life than to be a complainer. I ask myself the question, how common is this problem of complaint? Is there a lot of complaining going on? Are people naturally complainers? Well, just go on the internet and you'll read complaint after complaint. Just hang around the water cooler at work and you'll hear employees griping about their boss's latest decision or the company's new policy. There's even an internet set. It's entitled iVenting.com. It says it's the free place on the internet to vent. Get it off your chest, complain. Just go on, it's good for you, really? It's good to complain? Do you want to vent right now? Just go right ahead. Look at others who are, what they're venting about. Complain about anything. The whole world is here to listen. Complain about your neighbor. Complain about the metro. Complain about noise. Complain about your mother-in-law. <laughs> Complain about high prices. Complain about being ripped off. Complain about potholes. Complain about the police. Complain about welfare. Complain about work. Complain about your boss. Why do you think it is that God doesn't want us to complain? He wants us to learn to praise. Well, complaining is a sin. It's not the holy life that God has for you. Complaining is missing the mark. Complaining is pouring negative energy out of your soul and doing nothing to correct the problem. So let's say, for instance, you're going to drive through and you order a Diet Coke and French fries. But instead of getting a Diet Coke, you get a Coke. Now, you have no plans to drop the Mento in it. You really want to drink it, right? But you ordered a diet and you got a regular, and you ordered French fries and they're cold. Now, there's a couple approaches to the whole situation. The first thing you can do is to sort of like bellyache and complain, like they didn't give me what I ordered. Here's a surprise. You can also go to the counter and say, you know, I ordered a Diet Coke and I got a regular Coke. Or I ordered French fries. These came out cold. I prefer some hot ones. You see, we can turn our complaints into an appropriate kind of action. Also with complaining, often it is questioning the sovereignty of God. To complain is to say, in effect, God, you really blew it. You could have met my expectations, but you didn't. And complaining will hurt the people around you also. Nobody really likes a Negatron or a lifetime member in the Cold Water Brigade. And your friends and family hear you complaining, it's going to bring them down as well. So who's doing the complaining? 
Well, students will complain about their teachers. Teachers will complain about, complain about their students. Drivers will complain about potholes and traffic and yellow lights and other drivers. Customers complain about long lines and slow service. Air traffic controllers complain about pilots. Pilots complain about air traffic controllers. Kids complain about parents and their rules. Employees complain about their bosses and working conditions. Farmers will complain about the weather. Passengers on airplane. You ever done this one? You ever complained about an airplane situation? Like we used to get food and now they throw peanuts at us? Women complain about their boyfriends, about their husbands. Men complain about their girlfriends, about their wives. So I'm going to tell you a little story as we start. There was a monk, and he had taken a five-year vow of silence. So after five years at the abbey, the little monk was invited to the friar's office. And the friar said to him, my son, after five years of silence, what would you say? And he said, my bed is hard. He said, thank you very much. So for five more years, he went back into solitude. And after five more years, he was invited to the friar's office. And the friar said, what would you say, my son? He said, the food is lousy. So another five years passed. And after 15 years, the friar said to the little monk, what would you say after 15 years? He said, I quit. And the friar said, just as well. All you've done since you've been here is complain anyhow. <laughs> little joke. You think it's too funny? Complaining, complaining. Is there another approach to life than complaining? Open your Bibles, you have one, to Acts chapter 16. We'll begin the 13th verse. This is the story of how the gospel moved into Europe. It's the story of the Apostle Paul, who was called by God and anointed, who had a vision from God to take the gospel because the man of Macedonia invited him to come over. Looking back over the last 21 centuries, this event changed the whole course of Western civilization. You may have wondered how the gospel began to move in the West. Well, here's the beginnings of the story as Paul and Silas take the gospel into Philippi. The work went very well at the beginning. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony. And Paul and Silas and the team arrived, and they bore a message and they told the story about Jesus Christ. He came to town to tell about Jesus and him crucified. Wherever they went, they told about Jesus, who became one of us, who preached the message of forgiveness and freedom, that Jesus um, went around doing good, delivering people from demons, healing all different kinds of sicknesses and diseases. But one of his disciples turned against him, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. His name was Judas. And Jesus was arrested and then examined by the religious authorities. And he was sentenced to die. And Jesus walked through the streets of Jerusalem with his cross and his, his, um, his verdict, namely King of the Jews. And he went outside the city wall to a hillside we know as Calvary. And there Jesus was crucified. And the first thing from his mouth was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And for six hours, Jesus hung there, and he bowed his head, and, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died. And they laid him in a tomb. But on the third day, on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he was seen by over 500 people. You see, this Jesus was despised and rejected by man. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
And the punishment that fell upon him was for our peace. For by his stripes we all are healed. For all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all onto Jesus. It was a very simple message that Paul brought. And he was always looking for those who would be most receptive. So they would go, first of all, to the synagogue. But in this city, there was no synagogue. There was, in the law, that if there was no synagogue, they went beside the river. And there was a woman whose name was Lydia. And she was a businesswoman. And she was beside the river. And when Paul preached the gospel, Lydia's heart was opened up by God. And she believed the message. And it was a beautiful thing to see Lydia come into the kingdom. She was the very first one in the town to believe. Now, I believe that when the gospel is being shared, God prepares people's hearts. I recently had an opportunity to share the gospel with some non-Christians. Some Christians also were gathered there. And I noticed that many of the non-Christians were disinterested, almost disdain, for the message. But there was a person who was there who was very interested in what I had to say and wanted to have a conversation afterward. You see, God had prepared that person's heart to hear what I was about to say. There's no argument. There was agreement with the truth of what was being said. And Lydia, there beside the river, was not in disagreement with what Paul was saying. She was looking for the Messiah to come. And Paul was telling her about the Messiah, Jesus. They preached the word, and they expected God to move in that place. They knew that God had called them to that city, and they knew that only the gospel could transform to life. And Lydia was the first breakthrough in that community. I want to tell you that there are a lot of Lydias living in this town, businesswomen. Now, they may carry um, iPads and iPhones. They may have a calendar that's booked from sunup to sundown. But someday you're going to have a Lydia sitting in your office or in your living room or in your neighborhood. She's going to ask you a question about her son or about her family. And what she's longing for is for someone to give her some direction. There Maybe there's a, a sin in her life and she needs forgiveness. You see, <clears throat> I believe the city is full of Lydia's, women whose hearts are soft and tender. Perhaps they were raised in the church, but they took a turn somewhere. And they find themselves now on another street. They know, they'll learn that if they turn to the Lord, they'll find hope. They're just looking for someone to share their hope. They know that if they turn to the Lord, they'll find direction. They're looking for someone to give them direction. So the first breakthrough in the city was that of Lydia. The second breakthrough had to do with a teenage girl, whom today we would call a medium, beginning in verse 16. Even a witch, who was possessed by an evil spirit, who used her to channel clairvoyant messages. She could interpret the events of the day and predict the future. And her owners exploited her by charging for her services money. And this girl was following Paul and Silas around. And she said, these are servants of the Most High God. These men are telling you how to be saved. And Paul became very annoyed and irritated and troubled by all this. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, Spirit, out of this woman. Then as well as now, people get afflicted by 
various kinds of spirits. Paul knew that this could subvert the message. You see, what happens is the enemy would love to derail the proclamation by appearing to be in line with, by attempting to form an alliance. What we find about Jesus is that Jesus would often rebuke and silence these spirits. When the spirit cried out, you are the son of the most high God, Jesus ordered that spirit to be silent. The reason is when the truth is mixed with error, people can get sucked in and can't tell the difference between truth and error. So Paul was deeply annoyed and cast out the spirit. When the slave girl was set free, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace, and they placed false charges against them. And the crowd even joined in the attack, and the magistrate tore the clothes off of Paul and Silas and gave an order for them to be beaten with rods. They were dealing here with violent opposition. Now, Jesus had said that in this world you will face troubles. And if they hated me, they'll also hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Now, these men were righteous and doing something righteous, but they were facing persecution. Kind of reminds me of the story of Pastor Youssef over in Iran. For many years now, he's been held in prison by the Iranian authorities simply for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, God permitted this to be a door for a church to be planted in the city. But wherever violence is resorted to, it's a sign that evil is deeply entrenched. There's a place where evil is long-standing and deeply embedded. This is what we call a spiritual stronghold. In the town of Philippi, there was a spiritual stronghold. The enemy had an encampment. The spirit that was occupying the girl would have to be released in order for the gospel to flow freely. The good news is that we have weapons of our warfare that are not carnal, but are mighty through God to tear down strongholds. Here in this town, there was a stronghold, and when the stronghold fell, it would become open to the gospel. So there were three different manifestations of this stronghold. The first manifestation of the stronghold was the pride. The people of this city were filled with pride for being Romans and Roman citizens, for their town being a Roman city. Secondly, there was exploitation of this girl. She was held in slavery. When we were down in Haiti, we saw human slavery. We saw sex trafficking. We saw the exploitation of young women. It's largely the motivation we have now to make changes in Haiti. And the third evidence of a stronghold was the idolatry of money. These owners of this girl, when they learned the spirit was cast out of her, believed all hope of making gain was lost. So Paul and Silas were beaten. Their backs were bloodied and raw. And, raw. and this is where the term, by the way, Getting your licks comes from. You may have heard that. He's getting his licks. Well, the Romans had a person named a lictor. And when a person's back was beaten, the lictor would apply those rods to his back. And the person was said to be getting their licks. So Paul and Silas now were beaten. But this is not the end of the story. 
because about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Now, there's nothing unusual about an earthquake in Macedonia. When we had an earthquake last summer here, that's quite unusual. But in Macedonia, the earthquakes are quite common. There's a lot of seismic activity. The earthquake was natural, but the timing was supernatural. And what's going to happen is quite supernatural. And so what we see is that these men facing adversity, looking at troubles, being beaten, began to praise and pray to God. You know that when you praise the Lord, it begins to change the whole atmosphere. I mean, God inhabits the praises of his people. And we're called to lift up a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. How many know that when things get kind of negative and you begin to praise and you begin to worship, that there's like a light that goes on in the darkness? I mean, we need to learn to praise the Lord in the morning and praise the Lord in the evening and praise the Lord at midnight and praise the Lord when we feel like it and to praise the Lord when we don't feel like it, to praise the Lord when we wake up and praise the Lord when we go to bed. You know, the psalmist says, I'll praise the Lord in the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun because God is worthy of our praise. There's always something to praise God for. Even if there's nothing good, you can praise that God is good. You see, in praise, we're declaring the goodness of God, that God, you are holy, and God, you are faithful, and God, you are sovereign, and God, you care so deeply about me and my situation, that no matter what trial you're passing through, you can always praise the name of God. Suppose you were given a, you took your business card and you put it into a fishbowl and your card was chosen. You were chosen to take a free trip to Paris. But your free trip to Paris was an envelope. And as you're opening the envelope, you gave yourself a paper cut. And so you began to complain about the fact that your finger has a cut on the plane ride to Paris riding in first class. And so you're complaining about your finger while you're riding over the Atlantic Ocean. And that's what complaining is like. There are so many things to give praise to God about, and we're complaining about the finger cut. The praise of God. Paul and Silas did not have a spirit of complaint. At the midnight hour, they weren't complaining. Well, if they weren't complaining, what were they doing? They were praying and singing hymns to God. Their backs were raw and bloody. They had suffered a great injustice. They didn't know how this was going to turn out. They, did, they were faced with great uncertainty. They didn't know the earthquake was coming. But in light of all of these things, they were praising God and praying. I used to say to my kids that I'll see you before midnight because nothing good happens after midnight. But I want to tell you, this night, something beautiful was happening at midnight. At midnight, they were praising God and singing hymns to him. They could have been singing something like, How Great 
thou art, and great is your faithfulness. They sang because they could see something that was unseen. You see, in that prison cell, Jesus was with these men. The angels of God were ministering to them, and the promises of God were very real to them. There's no question these men, by faith, saw the unseen. Pastor Mike, this week, he received an abnormal blood test. Now, we could say that we've been suspecting something abnormal about Mike for a long time. But he had this abnormal blood test. And Dr. Hudhud, who's the local oncologist, said there's only a one in four chance this could be bone cancer. But to rule things out, he suggested taking some of his bone marrow and testing to see if he has bone marrow cancer. Now, if you know Pastor Mike, he doesn't do real well with blood or with pain. So it's not surprising there was a lot of anxiety in his heart about the whole procedure. So on last Sunday, as we were walking out of here, Jasmine Berg said, Pastor Mike, do you mind if I pray? He said, sure. So we prayed together. And when she finished the prayer, she said, Pastor Mike, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now another part of the story. Shara Madonna just retired, and she was given a picture of Jesus. And Jesus was holding little children with his hand wrapped around their neck, kind of cradling them, holding them closely. And when Pastor Mike closed his eyes in this procedure, he saw that picture of Jesus holding him. And Pastor Mike went in at 9 in the morning on Monday, and he lay there. He started singing hymns to God. Now, here's the picture. This guy's a Muslim. And Pastor Mike is singing Amazing Grace and Great is Thy Faithfulness. And he reported that the pain was not as bad as he expected it to be. You see, when we praise the Lord, God comes near and he begins to comfort us. And Pastor Mike didn't have to bite a bullet. He didn't have to take a swig of whiskey. He pictured Jesus in his mind and God comforted him in his time of distress. See, I don't know what trial you're passing through. I don't know what pain you're currently experiencing, what hardship you're wrestling with. But I do know this. When we praise God for being our provider, God makes provision for our life. When we praise God for being our healer, God brings healing into our lives. When we praise God for being our peace, the peace of God begins to flood into our lives. You see, who believes in him is like a river of living water that flows into him and flows out of him. You see, what happened on that midnight hour was these two men began to praise the Lord and pray to him. Paul and Silas were in a spiritual battle, and you find yourself in the midst of a spiritual battle. The enemy resists us taking back surrendered ground. The enemy was not going to give back that ground without a fight. And we know we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. And every inch of that ground is going to be contested. The enemy turns up the opposition and then switch to violence. But this is what we know, that God in his resurrection power was at work in the situation. And resurrection power cannot be stopped. And Paul would later write, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There is no way to stop the power of God. There is nothing that can withstand our God. 
There is no one who can oppose him. And the third thing they understood was that suffering is part of our Christian experience. James would say, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance produce maturity or character in our lives. That God is always at work in our pain, producing character inside of us. So Paul and Silas decided to pray and praise God and sing. And God said, you know what? Because these guys are praising, I'm going to shake this place up a bit. And so he sent an earthquake that shook, shook the foundation of the prison. How many of you know that when you pray, the chains fall off people? How many of you know that when you pray, prison doors swing open? How many of you know that when you pray, God hears your prayers? You see, these men were praying to a mighty God, and they believed that God had power, and power to deliver them. God had delivered others before, but now they were praying for God's deliverance. You see that when we pray, there's a catalytic kind of event that happens. The Spirit of God gets released, and just like you saw that Mentos in the Diet Coke explode, there's an explosive power of prayer. We take the focus off ourselves and we put our focus on God who's on the throne. And God's power gets released through prayer and prisoners get set free and chains begin falling off. So God sent an earthquake and the jailer realizes that all the doors are open, the chains have fallen off. And he takes a sword so as to end his own life. He knows that if Paul and the others escape, He'll have to forfeit his life. So the man is ready to take his own life. And Paul said, no, don't do it. Don't do any harm to yourself. We're all here. And they called for lights. And the man said these words with deep respect. He said, sir, what must I do to get saved? Now that is an excellent question. You know, you're never too old to get saved. And you can't be too young to get saved. That salvation is a gift that God wants to give to you. Salvation costs us absolutely nothing. Salvation costs God absolutely everything. The jailer could not go back and rectify his life. He could not undo what he had done. He couldn't turn over a new leaf and get saved. He couldn't clean up his act and could get saved. There was nothing he could do to get himself saved. Neither can you. The only way to get saved is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you're going to get saved. So why would you want to get saved? Because every effort you've ever made to save yourself hasn't worked. Because there's a voice inside of you saying, there must be something more. Because the Holy Spirit may be drawing you to himself. Bishop John Taylor Smith was over all the chaplains in the United States Army. And he always interviewed the chaplains asking these questions. He said, suppose I am a soldier who has been wounded on the field of battle. And I have only three minutes to live. But I'm afraid to die because I don't know Jesus. 
Tell me, how may I be saved and die with the knowledge that all is well? If a candidate began to beat around the bush and talk about baptism or the ordinances, he would say, that won't do. I only have three minutes to live. Tell me what I must do. And as long as Chaplain Bishop Smith was Chaplain General, a candidate could not answer the question, he could not be a chaplain in the army. You know, Bishop Smith was right. A gospel that cannot save a dying man is no gospel at all. A gospel that requires more than faith alone is no gospel at all. The Philippian jailer that night was saved by faith. Paul announced to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to be saved, you and your entire household. There was a man, his name was Selden Darth. Selden I met when I was a one-month-old Christian. Selden had a brain tumor and he was dying. He had a surgery scheduled the next day. I walked into his hospital room about 10 o'clock at night. And the first question he says to me is, Pastor R, how do I get saved? The first thing he said to me, how do I get saved? You see, he was already thinking about eternity. The jailer was thinking about his own eternity. What is beyond this life? And share with him the gospel. And that night, Selden was saved. And what he did was, he went to every um, patient in the hospital. He made up some cards entitled, The Power of Prayer. And he said, God has saved me. Would you like to get saved? And so he went to a person and said, God has saved me. Would you like to get saved? And so tell me about this salvation. His ministry for years was ministering to patients, telling them the power of salvation. Salvation is in no other name. For there's no other name among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. See, Paul knew this night the jailer had only one hope, and his hope would be put in the person of Jesus Christ. And the jailer put his hope in Jesus. You see, in order for the Philippian jailer to be reached, Paul had to be put in a Philippian jail. In order for a neighbor to be reached, there has to be a neighbor who reaches out. In order for a student to be reached, a student must reach out. You see, God has put us upon this earth not for ourselves, but to fulfill His purposes with our life. The jailer had seen real live Christians living out their faith. The jailer had seen the power of God manifested. None of these men escaped, they stayed behind. And this is what happened. Paul preached the message to the jailer and his family. And that night, very tenderly, the jailer washed his wounds. Him who had inflicted the wounds now washed the wounds. And he was baptized. And they had a meal together. In that early church in Philippi, there was a businesswoman, Lydia, and her family. A tender-hearted Lydia. There was a tormented slave girl, free now from a spirit. And there was a tough old soldier, the jailer, who sat down together and had fellowship with each other. This was the beginning of the church. They rejoiced together. They shared their life's problems. They bore one another's burdens. They welcomed into the family of God 
and they broke bread together. So let me ask you this question. How do you respond to life's problems? Would you say your automatic response is to complain, to bellyache, to grouse about? Because that's part of our humanity, right? That we know how to complain. But Paul and Silas are teaching us that in the midst of the life problems, they chose to pray and to praise God. That there is a God who could help them. One of the promises of Isaiah is that I will be with you, so do not be dismayed. I am your God, so do not be afraid. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my own righteous right hand. God is here to help you. And when you pass through the waters, they will not sweep over you, for I am your God. God wants to help us through the problems. So that's why we have prayer, to turn to him in the midst of our problems and to praise him that he's an all-powerful, loving God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we are here this morning, so often our response to life's problems is to complain, to find something negative to talk about without ever doing anything about the problem. We're surrounded, Lord, with a world that has fallen and people who do not know you. And Father, one of the deep works you're doing in our lives is turning our problems into prayers, turning our cares into prayers. And there's people all around this room who are facing very difficult trials. Great hardships have come into their life. So God, we just want to praise you. We want to lift up some praise to you because great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We want to magnify the name of Jesus, the name that's above all other names. Because, God, when you are magnified, the church is edified and the enemy is terrified. And, God, you want some praise this day. You want your children turning to you, glancing at the problems, but gazing at you, turning their eyes to Jesus. So, Father, would you just elevate us now into a spirit of praise? Would you allow us, Lord, to change the atmosphere of this room by giving you some praise? that, God, you be praised in the sanctuary, that the praise of Jesus would flow out of our hearts through our lips. Oh, God, would you be worshipped this morning. God, help us to learn from their mighty example and become a people of praise, we ask in Jesus' name.